together in the Northwest to be concerned about church planting because we were shocked at how thin things are on the ground where we are. We live in an area where 7.2 million people live. Church going is at about 1.3%, and uh, attendance at evangelical churches is at about 0.9%. That does uh, place us better than Yorkshire across the Pennines, where things are about half that numerically. 0.4 people in Yorkshire go to an evangelical church, which means Yorkshire is less evangelical than Japan. Now, that's pretty shocking, isn't it? Uh, and we were particularly shocked when uh, Peter Jensen, who's the Archbishop of Sydney, visited the UK in 2003. And to a number of us as ministers in the Northwest, there were about 10 of us gathered, and uh, so not much different to this. And he said, uh, I think, some very challenging words. He said, he said, you do know the cavalry aren't coming, don't you? By which he meant, uh, unlike the J John Wayne Westerns, there isn't going to be someone flying from over the hills uh, coming to save the day and sort everything out. He said, the cavalry aren't coming. He said, if the northwest of England is going to be one for Christ, you are the people who are going to have to do it, which shocked us, because I think we always probably did think that someone else would do it for us. And so we suddenly woke up to the fact that we have to do it ourselves. And secondly, he said to us, he said, evangelicals by and large, and I don't know whether this is true in Australia, but he said evangelicals by and large are very good about thinking locally. We know where we're, we're pitched and we've got our local region to win for Christ. And we're, we've been reasonable historically about thinking internationally because we know the Gospels for the whole world. But we're not that good at thinking regionally. So we think locally, we think internationally, but we don't think regionally. And that struck a chord with us in the Northwest that we knew as the ten of us we needed to think about the little patches where we geographically were. We had a vague concern for the world because we knew the Great Commission. But we never, never sat down and thought regionally, how are we going to see our broader than local but smaller than international? How are we going to see that one uh, for Christ? And I think Peter really uh, woke us up to think in those terms. So we've been thinking about that for the last seven years. We haven't got very far, but we've been thinking about it for the last uh, seven years. And it's great to be amongst a group of people who are also thinking about similar things uh, in Sydney. So I'm thrilled to be uh, with you. Now, Scott said, let's open the Bible to begin the afternoon. And that's really where I'm most at home, actually, than telling you about things I neither do very much or um, am very experienced at. So let's uh, open the Bible. And I wonder whether you turn to Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10. There are certain phrases that have entered our language, certain phrases that are associated, in fact, with shifts and change in uh, national history, where even the course of history has been changed as a result of a phrase that is associated with the change that has come about. So if I use a phrase like, here I stand, I can do no other, you know exactly who said it, you know what came about almost as a result of the man saying it, the Reformation in Europe. If I use a phrase like, I have a dream, again, you know who said it, and you know the change that was affected almost as a result of the dream that Martin Luther King had. In England, we remember, we shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be, we shall fight them on the beaches, and a and the phrase from Winston Churchill has entered into our national psyche as the moment that we as a nation decided that we would stand up to Hitler and engage properly in the Second World War. Now, I think there's a phrase in Acts chapter 10 which is even bigger 
though less well known, is even bigger than any of those that I've just quoted. And it comes in Acts chapter 10 and verse 13. I think that this is one of the turning points of the whole of human history. Acts chapter 10 verse 13, and it's just three words, kill and eat. And those words, kill and eat, really have changed the whole course of history. You and I would not be sitting here this afternoon if those three words had not been heard, understood and acted on. They are very fundamental indeed, because you know the way that the book of Acts has been working up to this point. You know that the Lord Jesus spoke to his apostles in Acts chapter 1 verse 8 and set out the programme for the rest of human history. It is, of course, the programme that is building on the promises made to Abraham at Genesis chapter 12. But when Jesus says in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the very ends of the earth. That is the programme for the rest of human history. That is what Jesus has said, building, of course, on the promise said to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. Well, you know how things have been working. They've been in Jerusalem in Acts chapters 1 through to 7. You know how in Acts chapter 8 the great persecution broke out against the church and all except the apostles, that's the professionals at that point, all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria and then how in Acts chapter 8 verse 4 those who've been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Now, in fact, we are allowed to know that in Acts chapter 11 and verse 19, that the persecution against Stephen had caused the gospel not just to be spread in Judea and Samaria. It had, in fact, gone as far as Antioch and caused the first Gentile church to be founded in Antioch. But Luke, in his narrative style, places our episode actually out of historical order. Acts chapter 11, verse 19, the foundation of the Antioch church. You can see from 11:19 if you've got it open. Now those who have been scattered by the persecution in connection with Stephen. That means that chapter 11, verse 19 could have been recorded at chapter 8, verse 4. Because that's where it actually comes. But Luke won't allow us to read the foundation of the Gentile church in Antioch until we've understood the theology that undergirds it, which is the foundation of the Gentile apostle in chapter 9, and the episode that happens with Peter and Cornelius in chapter 10. And I'm just going to say three things about what happens in chapter 10. We're running behind schedule already, but here are three things. First, I want you to notice the dinner arranged. There is Cornelius at the beginning of chapter 10. He is a Gentile. His name gives that away, his job, a centurion, and the regiment, the Italian regiment, is the underliner. He is a God-fearer, verse 2 and 3, but he is not Christian. Until God interrupts his prayers and brings him this vision. And in the dream, he is told by the living God that he is, in verse 5, to send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon, who is called Peter. He's staying with Simon, the tanner's house. And here are the travel directions for the servants. Oh, the house is by the sea. You can't miss it. It's right by uh, the sea. So the directions are given, and the servants are sent. Now notice that it is entirely God's initiative that the meeting between Cornelius, and in a moment between Cornelius and Peter, will take place. It is entirely the initiative of God. And so, in obedience, Cornelius sends 
the men to Joppa, verse 8. Which leads to the second episode in the story of the drama, the dinner arranged and then the menu discussed. The servants are on their way. It's at least a 24-hour journey before they will arrive. And God now takes the initiative with Peter in verses 9 through to 13. Because when the servants arrive up to this point, as we've read through the book of Acts, when the servants arrive, Peter will have to decline their invitation to a weekend break in Caesarea. What is going to change Peter in order to change from having to decline the Gentile servant's invitation to Gentile Cornelius' house to change him into accepting the invitation and going with them. Well, it's this famous vision that uh, Peter sees at lunchtime just after he's been on the uh, house roof and is in a trance. And he sees heaven opened and something like a large sheep being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles of the earth and birds of the air. Then a voice told him, get up, Peter, here are the three words, kill and eat. Now, those three words really are remarkable. You can see Peter's reply in verse 14, Surely not, Lord. And I think he's honest in his reply. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. The food laws of Leviticus 11, Peter had obeyed almost certainly without exaggeration here. A bacon butty had never passed his lips, a sweet and sour pork balls. He had never eaten. He was meticulous with the food laws. But you can see at verse 15 that the food laws have now gone. The voice spoke to him a second time, do not call anything impure that God has made clean. That is a remarkable statement from the living God. Because the food laws were crystal clear in Leviticus 11 about what was clean and unclean. And things that were previously impure and unclean, God has now declared clean. And so that Peter gets it, this happened three times. So that it's absolutely crystal clear that Peter can now go with the servants. And Peter has got it. Peter understands it. So when the servants arrive, while Peter was still thinking about this, the Spirit says to Peter, do not Hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. And Peter went down and said, I'm the one you're looking for. Why have you come? They say we've come from Cornelius. And Peter invites the guests in. And the next day, Peter started out with them. And some of the brothers from Joppa went along. Now, when they arrive at Cornelius's house, the guys bow down. And Peter says, I am only a man. And now Peter shows in verse 28, he really has understood and here is the key verse, I think. So Peter says to Cornelius and those gathered, you are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with a Gentile or visit him. So the barrier that kept Peter, who has the gospel, going to Cornelius, who hasn't got the gospel, that wall, Peter now understands, has come down. Look how he says, verse 28, but God has shown me that I should not call any... Now, in the vision, what had been shown? Any animal impure. But Peter's now understood that. I should not call any man impure or unclean. In other words, Peter understands, I, a Jew, can now mix with Cornelius the Gentile. 
So Peter, who has the gospel, and Cornelius, who needs the gospel, now can meet. So I want you to notice with me that the dinner is arranged by God, the menu is discussed as a result of God's initiative, and now, as we see the speech interrupted, we'll see that Cornelius and the Gentiles receive the Spirit. Cornelius explain, explains his vision, and it then leads to verse 34, Peter beginning to speak. And Peter speaks a carbon copy of the gospel that he preached to the Jews at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. It's all about what God has done for his son. And you can see it echoes the, um, the sermon at Pentecost, so verse 30, 38, how God anointed Jesus uh, because God was with him, verse 38. You put him to death, or the Jews put him to death, verse 40, but God raised him from the dead. God appointed him, verse 42, as judge of the living and the dead. Those are the highlights of the Pentecost sermon. And while Peter was still speaking, just as the sermon at Pentecost was interrupted, so the sermon here is interrupted. At Pentecost it was by Jews asking, what shall we do? Here he's interrupted by the Holy Spirit who pours out the Spirit on the Gentiles, such that the Jews who were there, verse 45, are astonished that the Gentiles have the Spirit poured out upon them, because they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. And Peter now understands, can anyone keep these people from being baptised with the Holy Spirit? They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. In other words, here we have... A repeat of Pentecost. Not as the norm of how people receive the Spirit, of course, but here the Gentiles receive the Spirit in the same way the Jews receive the Spirit. Interestingly, in a similar way to their kind of pseudos from Judea and Samaria. The Samaritans in chapters 8 had also received the Spirit. In other words, to make the point, I think, that the Gentiles are equally part of the people of God as the Jews had been who were converted, who received the Spirit back in Acts chapter to. A remarkable section that has moved at the beginning of the chapter from Peter, who would never have gone to the house of Cornelius, to by the end of the chapter baptising these Gentiles because they've received the Spirit in the same way that the Jews had. Well, you can imagine what was going on in Jerusalem when they heard this. They reckon that uh, Peter's gone out of his mind. And when he goes to Jerusalem in chapter 11, the circumcised believers criticise him, said, you went into the house of uncircumcised men. You ate with them. What were you on about? You can hear them say it. Well, Peter recounts the story, and you can hear almost the surprise in their voice at verse 18. So when they heard this, they had no further objections, and praised God, so then God has granted even the Gentiles repentance unto life. Now, that really is a momentous event in human history, isn't it? Centred around those three words, kill and eat. And I think for us who are involved in evangelism through church planting, teaches us a couple of very important lessons as we uh, think about the task before us. Here's the first. God is sovereign over the spread of the gospel. Now, that's true at every point in the book of Acts, isn't it? And it's fascinating, despite the fact Peter was there at Acts chapter 1, and he's heard chapter 1, verse 8, 
He knows, and if he's understood his Old Testament, he should know the plan of God is for the gospel to go to all the nations. At chapter 10 and verse 13, Peter had not got it. And yet through chapter 10, we see the understanding of Peter seeing that the gospel is for all. But notice God is sovereign at every point. So it is God who brings Cornelius to call on Peter. It's God who brings the vision to Peter that makes him twig that he can go to Gentiles. And it's God who brings the spirit on the Gentiles. God is in control of the gospel going out. And that pattern I could have shown you, and you know, is true all the way through the book of Acts. God is sovereign in taking the gospel out. Now can I say that that means this afternoon that we are very grateful, aren't we? Because you are Gentiles, yes. You are Gentiles. And friends, can I say that Sydney is the ends of the earth? Well, it is. If you draw a line from Jerusalem and you get to Sydney, there is nowhere else to go but drop off the map at the edge. There is nowhere. Sydney is from Jerusalem. If you draw a line from Sydney to Jerusalem, you are the last port of call before you drop off the map. You are the very ends of the earth. And yet God has been sovereign in getting the gospel here. Aren't you grateful for that? I think you ought to be. I am in England too. We've got a little bit more if you go from Jerusalem up to where I live. You've got Scotland and then you drop off the top. But the gospel's got to Scotland too, so that's good news. And the Scots are very grateful. God is utterly sovereign in the spread of the gospel. That ought to make us grateful and it ought to encourage us. Because in my experience, A, personal evangelism and B, church planting has been jolly hard work. I'll tell you some of the things we've done in the last seven years. And every single episode has been a battle and has been hard work. And if I wasn't confident that God was sovereign over the spread of the gospel, I'd be tempted to give up and to think it is impossible. God is sovereign over the spread of the gospel. And the second thing that helps me as we do higher, as we're engaged in church planting, is that sections like this in the book of Acts cause me to beware our prejudices. You see, Peter had just got it in him, ever since he was a nipper, that the gospel was for Jews and Jews alone. Now, he should never have thought like that, given the Old Testament, and given what Jesus had said to him in chapter 1 and verse 8. But, you know, I reckon that Peter's mistake in thinking the gospel was for Jews isn't far away from lots of us who think the gospel is just for PLUs, people like us. And it's an extraordinary thing how the early church had to learn that the gospel wasn't just for PLUs. Here in chapter 10, learning that it is for Gentiles. If we had time, I'd have taken you on to chapter 15, because the danger by chapter 15 is not just that you understand the gospel isn't just for PLUs, people like us, that it is for Gentiles too, but by chapter 15 the danger is, it's okay, the gospel is for Gentiles as long as they become Jews. The gospel is for people who are not like us as long as they become like us. And, of course, the remarkable thing that then gets recorded in chapter 16, as uh, Luke is selective in his description of the Philippian church, is uh, the accounts he records are of a woman, a slave girl, 
and a Gentile. Isn't that extraordinary? The church of, in Philippi that he describes, the gospel is for women and it's for slaves and it's for Gentiles. And there are all the breakdowns of the first century Jewish prejudice of who the gospel is for. And I need to keep hearing that because my danger in thinking about church planting in our region is to only think of PLUs. And I need to be reminded that the gospel really is for everybody, which means I've got to be thinking beyond just where it's easy to do church planting because it's doing it where we already have people who are like us. And so Acts chapter 10 has encouraged me over the last uh, few weeks as I've been studying it. God is sovereign over the spread of the gospel. That keeps me at gospel work. And I need to be aware of my prejudices, which will also keep me at gospel work. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that the gospel has come to the ends of the earth like Sydney. Thank you for those who brought it. Thank you for those who've been faithful in taking it beyond Sydney to Australia. Thank you to those who brought it to England. Thank you that you've been sovereign over the spread of the gospel and that you are that because it is your absolute plan that people from every nation, tribe and tongue should gather around the throne of the Lord Jesus on that day and proclaim salvation belongs to our God. Will you guard us from the prejudices that think it is only for some groups of people and not others and will you keep us therefore working on how we can get the gospel to the wide range of people that are in our own communities and neighbourhoods around us. Amen.